Okay. Uh, today I am not going to pass out a study sheet for next week. Uh, the way I do that is I, is I uh, usually work up the study sheet for the next week. Uh, I work that up uh, before I've really fully figured out what I'm going to say for this particular week, uh, and uh, which is oftentimes why I end up, you know, having the study sheet on hold. So I actually printed up the study sheet for next week and then realized we're not going to get anywhere near that. So, uh, so I'll hold on to that and pass that out next week. I do have a handout that I will give you in just a little bit about things we're talking about today. But, uh, but you, uh, you do have a study sheet that I passed out a couple weeks ago for today's lesson. Uh, let's see if we have any up here. Uh, well, I don't see any, so apparently they've all been passed out. So good luck if you don't have one. Sorry about that. Uh, but we are in Romans chapter 7. And... Uh, the last uh, couple weeks, we've been looking at verses 7 through verse 12. A couple weeks ago, we did a lot of kind of introductory, preliminary type discussion about things. And then, and then last week, we looked in detail at verses 7 through 12. And uh, today, we want to pick it up with verse 13. And uh, the original objective was to do verses 13 through verse 20 today, but what I've decided we will do is we will focus primarily today on verse 13, uh, and then what I want to do is I want to kind of lay the groundwork for the rest of the chapter. Uh, chapter uh, Verses 14 through 25 are a very challenging passage. Uh, it's a passage that, uh, that Christians have had uh, various opinions about down through the history of the church. So, uh, and when I say Christians, I mean really good, solid people who love the Lord and et cetera, have taken different approaches to this passage. And, uh, and for the person who gets to sit in the class and listen, or who gets to sit in the pew and listen, it's kind of convenient because you don't have to commit yourself. But if you're standing up front like I am <laughs> today and next week, uh, you expect me to make some kind of a commitment and you're hoping I'll commit to your position. Uh, right. But uh, so what we want, what I want to do is, is I want to take I want to take enough time to lay a groundwork as we approach this passage uh, so that uh, so that we really get a handle on it and get an understanding of it. And so you'll understand why I'm coming from where I am coming from. Uh, but uh, let me clarify that, that it's something to some degree what I said a couple weeks ago uh, in reference to the passage more generally, specific to the, specifically to the issue that we're going to wrestle with over the next couple weeks, the question of who is this I that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7? And is this person someone who is regenerate or someone who is unregenerate, somebody who is saved, or somebody who isn't saved, uh, or is it some something somewhere in between? Okay, if there is such a thing as in between. Okay, these are the kind of things that people, as they've approached this passage for the last two thousand years, have struggled with. Okay, so uh, uh, as we do that, 
we need to keep in mind uh, that that people do good people who really love the Lord and who really honor the scriptures take different positions on this. And my desire uh, is is twofold. One is to give you the tools, the equipment that you need to be able to interpret the passage and uh, also to share with you my own understanding of the passage and why I understand the passage the way I do. And and I do hope that uh, that by the time we're done, you'll all be in lockstep with me. Right. However, I am also realistic enough to know that ain't going to happen. Okay, Uh, that uh, you may choose uh, a different way of looking at the passage. And that's okay too, uh, in the respect that as long as you are listening to the Lord and as long as you are honoring and properly interpreting the rest of Scripture, uh, that relates to this passage and relates to these ideas and concepts. So particularly, as I said a couple of weeks ago, as long as you're being faithful to Romans chapter 6 and to Romans chapter 8, uh, that's, uh, the, those are some of my key issues. I think there are critical issues at stake in Romans 7 and, uh, and, uh, and how we understand that will, as, as we go through it, you'll see, how we understand Romans 7 reflects on how we grasp other important issues in the Christian life. Uh, but but uh, uh, you may come up with different conclusions than I come up with, but what I really desire is that you just be before the Holy Spirit in your own heart and in your own mind faithful to God's Word and faithful to what He says. And uh, so, uh, all that being said, what I'm saying is we may not, when we're all done, we may not all agree, and I can live with that as long as we respect one another and love and understand the critical issues that are at stake. Uh, one commentator uh, 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 that uh, is widely respected uh, by, by many, many uh, other commentators, a guy by the name of Douglas Moo, says, it may be generally said that the interpretation of few passages has been more influenced by one's broad theological perspective, experience, and sheer a priori assumptions than Romans 7, 14 through 25. What he's saying is that there are few passages that in all of Scripture that when people come to it, they come to it and interpret it in light of they're kind of a priori assumptions, the assumptions they've made ahead of time before they come to the passage. And uh, so one of the things we want to struggle with is we want to try and identify what are the, what are the assumptions or the presuppositions with which we come to Romans chapter 7 and to what degree are those presuppositions or those assumptions valid to the degree that they're valid, that's good. To the degree that they're not valid, then maybe we can reorient our thinking a little bit in Romans chapter 7. So, these are some of the things that we confront. Uh, we did last week, we talked about verses 7 through 12, and those verses lead us into verse 13 and the following verses. And uh, so, let's pick it up and read, uh, beginning in verse 7, and let's read all the way down through verse 25, because it's uh, verses 7 through 12 are kind of one paragraph, then we have verse 13, which is a transition between the two paragraphs. Some commentators put verse 13 with verses 7 through 12, and some put verse 13 with verses 14 through 25. But what's important to understand about verse 13 is that it's really a transitional verse between these two paragraphs, if you will. 
but it is all a context. And so in order to get the context, let's read the whole thing. Then let's briefly kind of remember what we talked about last week, and then we'll go on from there. So beginning in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now remember, he's asking this question because, as he mentioned earlier in, in the earlier verses, that the coming of the law uh, ended up in sin becoming greater, if you will, or, or in greater transgression, as he says in another place earlier in Romans. And so the question arises then, is the law sin? And he says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would have not known about, about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold in bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle or law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay? Well, there's a ton of stuff there that we're going to wrestle with over the next uh, few weeks. Um, but let's go back to verses 7 through 12 and just kind of glance down at those again and and what do you remember that we talked about last week or over the last couple of weeks?
probably the best example of something that would explain the nature of sin. Okay, good. He used, uh, we asked the question, why does Paul use in the course of his discussion, why does he use the Tenth Commandment? One that I think at least I tend to kind of put down at kind of the bottom of the list. You know, it came last. It was, you know, kind of God's last thought. Oh yeah, by the way, we don't want to forget coveting type of thing. So why is it that Paul picks coveting as as his kind of paradigm of the whole law? And... uh, and uh, as we were pointing out, one of the reasons is because what the, what the uh, prohibition on coveting does is it points out that sin is, a, sin is an inner thing. It's a thing of desire rather than just an outward expression. So many of the other commandments reflect, that, reflect uh, a prohibition on outward actions, whereas the prohibition on coveting really goes to the heart issue and goes to what we think and feel in our hearts. And, and so, in many ways, it really kind of, kind of goes more to the core issue of sin. And we'll explore more of that as we get on in later in chapter 7, why Paul's use of coveting is, uh, is so significant. Okay? What else? You said that chapter 7 was kind of an explanation of life under the law, where chapter 8 is going to be life under Okay, good. Okay, chapter seven. He's talking about life under the law, and specifically, as we saw earlier in chapter seven, he's talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about the law that was given at Mount Sinai. Okay, so, so what he's explaining to us in chapter seven is what it looks like for someone who lives under the law. And when we get to chapter eight, he's going to contrast that with what it means to live in the Spirit. So chapter 8 is going to be all about living in the Spirit. It's going to be a fun chapter. It's going to be an exciting chapter to look at. Okay, But before we get there, we have to understand what it, what it is set in contrast against. And it's set against the contrast, or it's contrasted against this idea or this concept of living under the law. What else? <laughs> you want me to hold it for you? Where sin taking opportunity for the commandment produced the coveting? What does it mean that the law produced the coveting? Well, that's a good question. What does he say? That is a good question. We did talk about it. But what actually does he say? What's it produced to me the coveting? I was wondering how you could rationalize that the law itself would produce motivation to do something wrong. But it doesn't say that the law produced coveting, does it? It says, you're talking about verse 8, right? Okay, verse 8. Can you want my glasses? <laughs> it says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced uh, coveting in me. Okay? So what he's saying is that, is that sin, and we'll really get into this as we go on further into chapter 7, but that sin in me exploited the law. So the law comes and then sin exploits the law and produces this coveting in me. Okay? Didn't read it well. Okay. But I didn't I don't know if you talked about it. My idea on the coveting was if I take the eye as Paul, which I kind of always done, maybe Paul as a representative of all of us. Okay. That he was such a good Pharisee that he could check off the road uh, he didn't work in Bibles. Yeah. In yeah. And then he'd been married. He, he, he obviously wouldn't steal and do those things, take that name in vain. But coveting, how do you get away from coveting? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I think that of course we don't have any example of this in any anywhere else in the New Testament in Paul's of Paul's experience, but but I, that's what I read into it. I read into it that that Paul was particularly cognizant of that because, like you say, outwardly in Philippians he said he was blameless. We'll talk about more of this next week. That he said he was blameless in in respect to the law. And yet somehow he discovers through this, this issue of coveting that it really hit him close at home. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. Anything else? I like your analogy. You said the law shows that the sin is not a pain Okay. Okay. To me, it brings up this idea that we don't want to step to the edge, you know, see how far we can go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sin is this monstrous beast. It's not this little thing, you know, little puppy dog that we can kind of keep in a cage and let out on a leash when we want. You know, sin is this beast which for the unbeliever controls his or her life. Okay? And that's the picture that Paul is trying to present is, is, the, is the monstrosity of sin. Okay? Anything else that we looked at last week you want to mention? Okay, uh, then let's go on. Uh, and like I said, what I want to do today is I want to, I want to reflect for a bit here on verse 13 specifically. And then I kind of want to overview the, the rest of this particular paragraph, which goes down through verse 20. And, and, uh, and in doing so, just kind of lay some groundwork thoughts for you. And in in a little bit, I don't want to hand it out now because I don't want you reading ahead. But I'll hand out a little handout here that kind of gives both views of, uh, or the two major views, I should say, of how Romans seven is interpreted. So you can look at at the arguments on both sides. Uh, and and I'll hand that out in a bit when we get to that point. But but as I said, the kind of the major question that people wrestle with with Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25 is the question of is this a believer's struggle with sin or is this an unbeliever's struggle with sin? Okay, that's really the question. Is he talking here about a saved person or is he talking about an unsaved person? And... Uh, and, and as I said, uh, Christians come down on either side of this issue. Now, I do want to point out the question is not, do, do believers struggle with sin? That is not the question. We all know, right, believers struggle with sin. So the question as we come to Romans 7 is not, do Christians struggle with sin? The question is, does Romans 7 talk about a Christian struggle with sin? That's the question. Because we can find all kinds of examples in Scripture of Christians struggling with sin. Okay, So that's not what we're debating. So sometimes when people come to Romans 7, they'll go, they'll go, well, you know, I struggle with sin. So obviously Romans 7 is talking about that. Well, no, not necessarily. We'll, we'll wrestle with that and find out. So I will concede that you struggle with sin. I do too, by the way. Okay? I struggle with sin. And sometimes that struggle is very intense. The question is, is that what Romans 7 is talking about? And the reason that is important is because if Romans 7 is talking about a believer's struggle with sin, 
then to some degree it defines that struggle. It tells us what we should expect in that struggle, okay? In ways that no other passage in Scripture does. If, however, as some argue, it is not an issue, uh, it's not discussing the believer's struggle with sin, but it's trying to tell us something about the unbeliever and the unbeliever's encounter with the law, then it's not saying some things, certain things about our struggle with sin that we might think it's saying. And secondly, it is telling us some things about what our relationship to sin is and what our relationship to the law is that we, would, that we might not conclude if we thought this was addressing a believer. Okay? So there are important issues at stake, but we're not asking ourselves, do Christians struggle with sin? That's not the question we're asking. We're only asking, is that what this passage is talking about? Okay? Uh, and depending on how you answer the question uh, affects how you understand the problem of sin in the life of the believer and in the life of the unbeliever. It has a bearing on how you understand God's purposes for the law in the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever. And it also reflects on how one views our obligation to the law, either as a believer or as an unbeliever. So, so they really are important issues that we're wrestling with in this passage. Okay, and they have great bearing. Now, as we've said many times before, and I stressed a couple weeks ago, before we actually seek to figure out how does this passage apply in my life, we have to interpret it first, right? So that's what we're going to work on. We're going to work on getting the interpretation down. And once we've gotten there, once we've gotten what we feel is an interpretation that we're comfortable with, then we're in a place to say, okay, what difference does that make for me today, March 3rd or March 4th or March 5th of 2013? Okay, so we will ask that question, but we want to wrestle with understanding the text first couple things I want to remind you of. I want to remind you of what, we've established, what we established right at the very beginning as we laid our groundwork for our study of Romans is the context of the Roman church. What's going on in Rome when Paul's writing this letter among the Roman believers? Okay, okay. And then subsequently... The return of the Jews, okay? So, so the Jews have been exiled out of Rome. And prior to that time, presumably, we don't have a lot of history of the early church in, or early Roman church, but presumably the church in Rome was predominantly Jewish before the Jews were exiled. But then the, uh, Caesar exiled the Jews from Rome for a period of time. They were exiled. They all left. That leaves you only Gentile converts in the church. The church continues to grow. It continues to prosper. And about five or six years later, the Jews return. Now, they return, of course, assuming, okay, we're back home. We get to run things the way we used to run things. But now they find out they are in a predominantly Gentile church. So now you have this issue. And this is part of what Paul is wrestling with as he writes the book of Romans is this tension within the church in Rome of a church that is now predominantly Gentile but has a strong Jewish influence and he's got to help this church figure out 
where does all this old Jewish stuff fit in? Where does the law fit in? And where does you know, all, so many of the same things that the church in Jerusalem had to wrestle with, even though it was never a Gentile church. Some of the things it had to wrestle with as Gentiles began to be included in the church, uh, things like we see in Acts chapter 15 and other places, these are some of the things that now the church in Rome is wrestling with. So we have to remember that as Paul is writing Romans, this is one of the things that's foremost in his mind is resolving the issues that this little church or big church, however big it was, we don't know, but how the, the issues that this church is wrestling with as it tries to figure out where does the, where does, how does the old Jewish faith fit in with this new Christian thing, okay? So that's what he's wrestling with. Something else we need to remember is something Mike brought up a few minutes ago is that this book is being written by Paul, the apostle, who used to be Saul of Tarsus. And this guy was a guy who in Philippians described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay? Now, one of the things we know about Pharisees, we'll explore more of this next week. One of the things we know about the Pharisees is they were really big on the law. The law was a big deal to them. Okay? So, here we have Paul writing now from his perspective as a believer, but he's writing as one who understands this, this uh, Jewish attitude towards the Mosaic Law. Okay. And that colors our interpretation of the passage. It should color our interpretation of the passage to understand that Paul is writing, as Mike suggested, autobiographically. He's writing from his own experience. But he's also doing it as one who identifies with, as we pointed out, the whole Jewish people and their encounter and their relationship to the law. So that colors everything that he's saying. And, and that is, of course, uh, fundamental to our understanding of the passage. Another thing we've established early in the chapter is that Paul is talking about the Mosaic Law. So first and foremost, when we encounter the term law, there are some exceptions that we'll get into at the end of the chapter. But, but first and foremost, whenever we encounter the word law, in particularly in the early part of Romans and where we are now in Romans 7, he's talking about the Mosaic Law. Okay? That's important for us to understand. So it's not prim- he's not primarily talking about kind of the general law. He's not even talking about human conscience at this point. He's talking about the law and how when the law came in, it produced sin. And we've talked all about that in the earlier verses. So these are just things that I want us to keep in mind as we go through the passage. Uh, One other thing I want to say before we launch into verse 13 is, uh, is I want you to notice that throughout these these verses that we're looking at now, we have a what I want to call a trail of logic. Okay, there's a trail of logic through the passage. Now, I don't know what translation you have. Some translations uh, uh, do a better job of translating this trail of logic than others do. Uh, uh, the uh, King James is pretty good. The New American's a little better at it. The the, the uh, ESV English Standard Version is real good at it. The NIV is terrible at it. It just totally misses the trail of logic. So if you're operating out of the NIV, you may not see this, okay? But uh, 
But I want to just point this out to you. If you have a New American or an ESV, or, and to some degree the King James, I'm using the, uh, the uh, New American. Uh, but I want you to notice, he gives verse 13, uh, he gives this transitional statement, as I said, which we'll go back and we'll look at. But then I want you to notice the first word or the first phrase in every subsequent verse from 14 through 20. Okay? Take a look at it. In 7.14, it begins for. Okay? That's a translation of the Greek word gar. Uh, uh, it's, it clearly implies that what he's saying is follows in the logical train of what he has just said in verse 13. Okay? Notice in verse 14, the first word is what? For. In verse 16, the first word is what? But. Okay? Clearly connecting it logically to what has gone before. Okay? Contrasting with what has gone before. In verse 17, he uses the word, the phrase, so now. The word now there is not being used in a temporal sense. It's being used in a logical sense. Okay. So in other words, you know, sometimes when you're making an argument, you lay down the premises and then you say, now, given these premises, this is our conclusion. Okay. So the word now here is not being used in a temporal sense in the sense of saying, now this is true where it wasn't true before. What he's saying is this now follows given the presuppositions that we have set forth. So now is used in a logical rather than a temporal sense. Then in verse 18, what's your first word? Four. In verse 19, four. And in verse 20, now or but if, depends on how they translate it. I think the translation but if is a little better there, but some translations say now. Again, it's that idea of the logical uh, <clears throat> the logical. Uh, 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 perspective from the word now. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that each one of these verses follows on the verse before it. So we're going to have a problem trans or interpreting chapter 7 if we just kind of jump in, pick any verse, and try and understand Romans 7 based on that verse standing by itself. No verse in Romans 7 stands by itself. It's saying something logically following from the thing that was said before it. So, for example, if you jump in at verse 17 and you go, oh, well, you know, this is what he's talking about because verse 17 says thus and so. Well, but verse 17 is following on verse 16, which is following on verse 15, which is following on verse 14, which is explaining something he said in verse 13. Okay. So if we want to really understand chapter seven, chapter 7, we've got to start at the beginning of his logical train and follow it to its conclusion, not jump on the train somewhere down the line and then think we understand the passage. Does that make sense? This is what we call the hard work of biblical interpretation. Sometimes it's easy to interpret Scripture. Sometimes it's very clear Sometimes, particularly when you're dealing with Paul, who likes these kind of run-on logical trains, it takes a lot of work to interpret Scripture, okay? So this is the hard work of interpretation. We've got to follow this train of logic back to its beginning and then start there and work our way forward, okay? So that's what we're doing in this passage. Okay, so 
As I mentioned, uh, commentators sometimes attach verse 13 to the verses before it. Sometimes they attach it to the verses that are after it. And the reason they do both is because it's really a transitional verse. So whether you see it as linked more closely to verses 7 through 12 or more closely to verses 14 through 15, what is important is that you see that verse 13 is kind of a transitional verse from what his argument that he'd been making in 7 through 12, which is that the law is not sin. The law is good. And he concludes there in verse 12 by saying the law is good or the law is holy. And he said, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's his conclusion for those uh, those verses immediately preceding that. The law is a good thing. Now, if the law is a good thing, that raises another question. Paul keeps making himself have to answer these questions, doesn't he? He keeps making statements and then... And then going, oh, well, now somebody's going to think from that this. And so he's got to show that that's not true. Okay, so in verse 13, he says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Okay, because we've already concluded that when the law came, he said in the previous verses, when the law came, he said, sin became alive and I died. Remember? So. And and speaking in identification with Israel, Israel comes to Mount Sinai and they're doing pretty good. They're kind of cruising along. Of course, they've had a little rebellion along the way and stuff, but they finally got to Mount Sinai a few months after they leave Egypt. They get to Mount Sinai and then God comes and he speaks vocally from the mountain to the entire nation of Israel and he speaks the Ten Commandments and he gives the Ten Commandments. And right off the bat, the first commandments are no other gods before me, no graven images. Okay? And then what do we find they do? By chapter 30 of Exodus, that's chapter 20. Chapter 30 of Exodus, what are they doing? They're making a golden cow. And they're not just doing it individually, which you know many of them brought their golden idols out of Egypt, but they're not just doing it individually. They're doing it collectively as a nation now. It's a national act of rebellion against God. Okay? This is what the law did. The law came, when the law came, sin became alive. And the nation of Israel, in a sense, died in a sense in which they had not been dead before. Okay. And, and that's Paul's point. That when God speaks His law, specifically referring to the Mosaic law, that it, that it aggravates that sin nature. That sin nature sees the law as its opportunity to kill us. You see, that's what sin wants to do. Sin wants to kill us. And the law tells us that the wages of disobeying the law is what? Death. Death. Okay, so sin goes, this is my chance now. The law has been spoken. This, you know, this person knows that if he does this, he will die. And so this is my chance. So he exploits the law and arouses the sinful passions, as he says earlier, arouses the sinful passions in us, and we sin and we die. So Paul says, the law came and sin became alive, that thing that was kind of dormant and down in there. Of course, we know sin wasn't ultimately dead, but it was down there and it was dormant in us. And when the law came, it came to life. And Paul died. I think an excellent picture of that 
is with Balaam, because Balaam was hired to curse the children of Israel, but he couldn't. But instead of cursing the children of Israel, he at least told the people who were paying how they could do it. But take your daughters, camp out nearby, and when they play the harlot with them, God will kill them themselves. And, and that is illustrative in what sense? Is that uh, how sin that was just... Uh, Okay. 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 Good. Good. Uh, well, so now the question is, did that which is good, which in this case is what? The law. Okay. It's good. It's holy. It's righteous. Okay. He's established that in verse 12. So did that which is good and holy and righteous cause my death? That's his question. Because we see this chain of reaction. The law came. Sin became alive. I died. So, the natural conclusion, right, is the law caused my death. And what's Paul's answer to that? May it never be. Okay? Translated in different ways, but that I think the word, the, the phrase, may it never be, is a, is a great way to translate it. It's certainly better than the phrase, God forbid, which some translations use. But it's the idea of, no way. <laughs> no way, folks. That which is good did not cause my death. This goes back to the question that, that Mike asked earlier. You know, It wasn't the law that caused our death, he says in verse 13, but rather it was sin. So sin caused my death by exploiting the law. So, the, so sin took opportunity and used this good thing and it caused my death. You know, this, this is not a particularly difficult concept for us to grasp. We all are cognizant of many good things that God has given to us that people use for evil purposes, right? All kinds of things. So, uh, we have, you know, we have great food, but some people use food for evil. We have uh, uh, our sexuality that God has given to us, but oftentimes we use it in ways that are not holy or good. We have automobiles that we think are a pretty good deal. We kind of like them, but oftentimes people use them uh, for ill purposes. I see, I saw in the paper this morning, they had a, a chase here in Norman that resulted in a head-on collision. Okay, somebody had an automobile, which was, uh, you know, it's a good thing. We like them. They, they really help us live life. But someone had taken it and used it for evil and caused destruction and injury to other people, okay? So it's not a foreign concept to us that something that we recognize as a good thing can be used for evil. And that's... Uh, excuse me. I just thought the gun control argument right now. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> it's a volatile issue, but that's... An, uh, but they're necessarily good, but they're neutral, but they get blamed. Yeah, but they get blamed, right. Okay, so, so this is Paul's argument. Okay? It was not the law, he says in verse 13, but it was sin. Now, what we understand here is that God gave the law knowing this would happen. God gave the law knowing that sin would exploit the law and arouse our sinful passions. Okay? So we know that. He knew that. So why did he do it? So that we would know. Okay, and why do you say that? 
because we don't know, I guess from just now, we don't know, pigs don't know pigs sing. <laughs> you got that, folks? That's the lesson for today. Pigs don't know pigs stink. Okay. <laughs> so, by getting along, we realize that we are committing sin. Okay. What does he say in verse 13? Okay. Uh, what translation is that? Uh, Amplify. Okay. Might plainly appear. Okay. The idea is, he says there in verse 13, in my translation, uh, he says, Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin. So what he's saying is, I had sin in me, but I really didn't understand it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I didn't know, if you will, how sinful it was. You know, most unbelievers, you encounter them and you talk to them and they think they're pretty good people, right? Most people, you know, and, and in fact, you know, a real common attitude because we don't have many people who are influenced by, uh, by Christian thought anymore. The typical idea in our culture today is people are basically good, right? That's our idea. People are basically good. And the reason we think people are basically good is because even though they recognize they occasionally do bad things, they don't understand how sinful sin is. So it's very difficult for them to understand how it is that God could send sinners to hell. Because, you know, it's, it's just a mistake we make. And so, he says, God gave the law so that sin would be shown to be sin by causing our death through that which was good. So, I begin to understand how sinful sin is, or as he says at the end of verse 13, how utterly sinful it is. I begin to understand that when I realize, oh, wow, this thing that I thought wasn't such a big deal, it's killed me. Now I realize it's really a big deal. So Paul's argument here is no. It was not something good that caused my death. It was sin that caused my death by exploiting the law and God set it up so it would happen this way. God gave the law in order, as he said earlier in Romans, and remember we saw it, in order that the transgression might increase, in order that sin might be shown to be utterly sinful. In other words, God gave the law so that I would understand my predicament. So that I would understand how serious is my condition I, as a sinner. How awful and how terrible and how brutal and how domineering sin is. And until I understand that, I'm not going to understand the need of a Savior. Go over, flip back to chapter 5 for a second. And... And uh, I've already referred to this verse a couple times, but go back to chapter 5, the end of the chapter there, verse 20. Notice he says, The law came in that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, 
Grace abounded all the more. So that, this is why all this happened, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is he saying? He's saying the law was given so that sin would increase but where sin increased, there was abundant grace. Remember, we talked all about that, how abundant God's grace was and there was ample provision for no matter how much people sinned, there was ample provision in the grace of God. But he says, he says the law came in so that sin would increase and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that grace would reign through life. What is he saying? It was necessary that the law come that sin increase, that I recognize how desperate is my plight so that grace could work. In other words, until I understand my predicament, I'm not going to seek the cure. How many of you in the classroom here have had chemotherapy? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, well... Then that answers my second question. Because <laughs> my second question was going to be, how many of you who have not had cancer have had chemotherapy? Have, you, have any of you ever thought about having chemo? Just, you know. I mean, some of us, we pop aspirin like, you know, we get a sliver in our finger and we go pop aspirin, okay? Do we do that with chemo? We don't, right? Why not? Why don't we have chemo? The effects of chemo on somebody without cancer just is just a way of killing your body off. Okay, okay. It's just really devastating. And, and it's not a cure I would seek unless I knew I had cancer. Right? I'm sure we all know people that caring Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah. So when someone when someone knows they have cancer, then they're going to get the treatment. But we don't go out and get chemotherapy unless we know we have this, the problem, okay? And unless and and the reason the reason we jump on it and we go get the chemo when we're diagnosed with cancer is because when we're diagnosed with cancer, we realize things are out of control, and we're going to die. If something isn't done drastic, because chemo is not a real pleasant process to go through. So we're not going to go through that unless we recognize this is a very desperate situation. That's an analogy to what's going on here with the law. The law has come. It is the diagnosis. It reveals to us the cancer of sin in us that is killing us. And the reason God gave the law that he knew would result in transgression increasing was in order that you and I would be alerted and discover that this thing we thought in us was this little chia pet that we kept that we keep in a cage, you know, and control, we find out is really this gorilla monster that is dominating and controlling our lives. And until we recognize that, we will not cry out for a Savior. Gary. When it says in verse 13 that using this good thing as a weapon, uh, somebody got some paper towels <laughs> I'm watching you and reaching for my coat <laughs> if the law has been telling us that, that we should lie or that we should steal 
and we, we were enticed and we were entrapped. That would be one thing. But the law was telling us to do something good, and it was overruled by our Good, lives. good. And so that shows me even more that it's our problem. Okay, great, good. Okay, and that actually leads us into where we're going, uh, where we're going next. Um, but what I think is important for us to understand is that in verse 13, he's very clearly talking about an unbeliever, right? And uh, thank you, Ginger. Appreciate that, Mike. Uh, in verse 13, almost. I think every commentator I consulted sees that that's clearly an unbeliever. It's somebody who is who uh, upon whom the law has had this impact of revealing their sin to them and revealing that they are dead and revealing that they are in this great predicament. Okay. now. We pick up then from verse 13, we pick up this logical progression that he sets forth in the next uh, uh, seven or eight verses. Okay, or actually all the way down through the end of the chapter. And uh, and I just want to kind of do at this point, I want to do a brief overview of these verses, verses 14 through 25. And I'm going to raise a bunch of questions that are going to come to your mind and I'm not going to try to answer them today because we'll go back after we've kind of seen the progression today uh, and talk about a little bit more about this two ways of looking at the passage. Then we'll go back beginning next week and we'll go through verse by verse. And uh, is that enough, Ginger? Do you have enough there? Yeah. Okay, we can get the rest of it. Automatic paper towel dispenser is incredibly slow. <laughs> <laughs> <In> emergency. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for, thanks for taking care of that. Appreciate that. Uh, So, as I pointed out earlier, we have this logical progression. So, verse 14, now you'll notice when he goes from verse 13, he's talking in the past tense. He goes to verse 14, he's talking in the present tense. Okay, And that causes us, that's a real challenge to interpret. And it's interpreted two different ways. But we won't get into that today. But uh, I do want to note that for you, that there is a change to the present tense in verse 14. Okay? But you'll notice that he says in verse 14, for what I am doing, or excuse me, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now remember, verse 13 is talking about an unbeliever. It's talking about an unregenerate person. Now in verse 14, he links verse 14 to verse 13. But he says it in the present tense. So many commentators at this point, many Christians look at that and say, Paul is now talking about his present experience as a believer. And I'm going to suggest to you that is not the case. But, but I'll explain why as we go through. I'm not going to get into that today. But uh, I just want to state my position up front so you know where I'm coming from. And I'll, and I'll hand out here in a minute... I'll hand out the arguments on both sides for you to be able to look at over the next week. Uh, and, they are both, and, and they are strong arguments on either side, so we'll have to wrestle with that. Uh, but he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. So, but I am so, so what he's saying here is, what he's doing here now in these verses is he's explaining this process of how it is 
that sin becomes utterly sinful. And I would suggest to the unbeliever. How it is that the unbeliever discovers the true nature of sin in himself. The law does that. The law brings that to work, brings that to, brings that to the fore by aggravating, if you will, <laughs> the sinful nature within me. Okay? So I have this sin that's dormant, it's dead, the law comes, the law becomes alive, or the sin becomes alive, and, and I die. And so this is how I discover the utter sinfulness of sin. And I would suggest to you that that is what chapter 7 is about. How the unbeliever discovers the utter sinfulness of sin. Okay? So, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, a soul, but I am in bondage to sin. So, he says, we know this. Okay, this is a given. We've already established this. We know the law is good. We know I'm a sinner. Okay? We know that. Okay? And then he says, for I am doing what I do not understand. So, so now he begins to describe this process of discovering the utter sinfulness of sin. And he says here, for what I am doing I do not understand. Does Paul really not understand this? He does understand it because he goes on to tell us, explain it all to us, right? So what does he mean when he says, I don't understand it? When he says, I don't understand it, he's speaking as a person who has not yet discovered the utter sinfulness of sin. In other words, if you don't know the utter sinfulness of sin, then this conflict that he's going to describe doesn't make any sense. If sin is not utterly sinful, if sin is not this really big thing, if it's just this little kind of toy over here I can play with, but God is not really worried about it, and it's really no threat to me, if sin's not a big issue, then I don't understand what's going on. Because on one part, I want to do what the law says. And I say, okay, this is what I want to do, because the law says I, want, I should do this, so this is what I want to do. And then I find I don't do it. And by the same token, the law says don't do this. So I say, okay, I don't want to do this. And then I find myself doing it. And the unbeliever doesn't understand that. And the reason the unbeliever doesn't understand that is because he doesn't know the other sinfulness of sin. So he says, so I don't understand this thing that's going on. And he describes then this phenomena of wanting to do what is good and not doing it, and not wanting to do what is bad, and doing it. And he can't figure this out because he doesn't discover, he doesn't understand the utter sinfulness of sin. So as he begins to confront this reality that he would never have confronted without the law, as he begins to confront this reality of this discovery of this dualism within himself. Now, Paul's theology is not primarily dualistic, but there is an element of it here, a very strong element here in chapter 7. This idea that Paul says, on one hand, I want to do what is right, and I don't do it. And what he concludes in verse 15 then, excuse me, verse 16, what he concludes is that he has 
affirmed the goodness of the law. He's affirmed the goodness of the law by saying, okay, God said you shall not steal. I don't want to steal. And so he's affirmed that that's good. But I find myself stealing. <laughs> or, or in Paul's case, coveting. The law says you shall not covet, and I find myself coveting. And so, he begins to discover that there's something in him he cannot control. And that though he wants to do one thing, he finds himself doing just the opposite. Now, the argument uh, that some would raise at this point is an unbeliever never wants to do good. And I would suggest to you that that's a bunch of malarkey. We all know unbelievers who want to do good. We all do. Before you were a believer, you wanted to do good. You didn't want to do perfect good. <laughs> and you had all kinds of corrupt motives, but you wanted to... Jesus talks about people doing good. Jesus talks about the Father who, when His child comes and asks Him for bread, does not give to Him a scorpion. Right? So, unbeliever, Jesus says, you being wicked, give good gifts. Okay? So, wicked people do good things. Not good enough to get to heaven. Not good enough to satisfy the righteousness of God. But bad people do good things. And Paul himself is a classic example when he was Saul of Tarsus of a of a sinful man who was obsessed with keeping the law. Assenting to the goodness of the law. Okay? Yeah, go ahead. I would probably disagree on that part. I think I'm going to end up in the same place as you. But, uh, one of the arguments that I always thought that this was maybe Christian was that believers don't want most of my those don't want to do what's right. Now, I don't think so. Uh, maybe justify it. I think they want to justify their sin, but they really don't want oh, to do Oh, I need right. those. Thank you. And okay, well, that's something we'll explore as we go forward. It, and then when maybe get ahead, I could take it as I see it as Paul is not a typical unbeliever. When he, was, he was really a Jew trying to keep the law as best he could. So he would see that as a different perspective than the average. Well, that's a possibility. Yeah. Out there today. Yeah, that's a possibility. And we can explore that. Now, this sheet I just handed out while he was talking because we're running out of time. So I want to make sure I hand this out. You'll see it's printed on both sides. So make sure you don't just read one side. Okay. But on one side, it explains the position uh, of the view of, Rome, of this passage that it's speaking about a regenerate person and it gives uh, five reasons why many commentators understand it's talking about a regenerate or a saved person. Okay. On the opposite side is the other position. I get these arguments from Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans and he sets them out uh, before he takes his own position that he, that he makes very clear in his commentary, but he sets out the arguments on both sides. And I wanted to give this to you because I want you to understand there are good arguments for both sides. And I'm going to take one position, which I think I've made clear by now, is the position that it's talking about an unregenerate person. But in order to take that position, I not only have to... I not only have to agree with the points that support my position, but I have to be able to answer these other points, right? 
and I have to be able to answer them satisfactorily. If I can't answer them satisfactorily to your satisfaction, you might end up over here on the other side. Okay, that's fine. Okay, but I'll give it my best shot. Okay, but I wanted you to have that, and this will probably provoke some questions as we go forward in in uh, in the next week or two as we look at the passage. Okay, so uh, but I wanted you to have that in your in your hands so you see what are the reasons why people give either way. Uh, But aside from the reasons that are listed there on the on the sheet, that's like I said, just something I copied directly word for word from Move. I think one of the strongest arguments, in my view, that this is an unbeliever, is this logical progression from verse 13 forward. Verse 13 verses uh, verses uh, uh, chapter seven verses beginning actually in about verse eight or whatever down through verse 12 and in verse 13, very clearly is an unbeliever. The commentators are, as far as I know, almost universally agreed on that. But then we get into verse 14, and that's where the debate begins. But what I'm suggesting to you is there's a logical progression growing out of verse 13 that is another argument for my position. Yes, uh, Rick. Yes. 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 And and that was my point. Let's get the interpretation down. And once we got the interpretation down, then we can go back and say, okay, how can we apply this in our life? And so we want to do that. But we need to get the interpretation down first. So this is where we're headed. But as we're moving in that direction, keep in mind that the overall really critical issue here is a contrast between living under the law as opposed to living under the Spirit. And that's something that does clearly apply to us as believers, regardless of how you interpret Romans chapter 7. The question is, am I a, as I a believer, am I going to live like I'm under the law? Or am I going to live by the power of the Holy Spirit? Okay, So we can make that application and we'll explore that in greater depth as we go forward. Okay, Now, just one last thing. Let me remind you that you know, all this stuff is tied together. We don't, we're not wrapping anything up in any one given Sunday morning lesson, okay? So if you miss something, if you want to go back and miss, get something we said before that you've missed, or if you want to, if you're going to miss next week and you want to get or whatever, uh, you know, just remember everything's up on the internet. You can go to our website, www.hearbibleteaching.org and just follow the links there. And the podcasts are usually up there within a few hours after the Sunday morning service. Sometimes it has to, I have to wait till Monday to get them posted. But usually they're up there by uh, Sunday uh, afternoon. So you can, you can follow the logic even if you miss some of the classes or whatever as we go forward. And I just want to remind you that. Okay, next week we'll pick it up. We've laid a lot of groundwork. Next week we'll pick it up and we'll start going through these verses one by one. And these issues, some of which Mike just raised, are ones we'll tackle one by one. And I want you to be ready to ask questions because that's the only way we're going to get these issues resolved. Okay? Thanks.